You know, my wife and I, uh, as part of this church family, we do the same thing. We pray about, God, what would you have for us this season? How would you invest in your house, God's house? Uh, not only through our finances, but also how we give our time, how we serve, how we use our gifts, and even through our weaknesses would his strength be made so clear and so powerful. You know, so much is going on in the life of this church that we can't see. We have many that join us online. There's people who have just moved across the country who are joining us in service. Right now, we have people who live across the world who join us in service. People listen to this after the fact. Uh, If you don't know, we just had a life in your neighborhood fair, getting to know some of the life group leaders in your neighborhood. And if you want to sign up for a life group, you can find out how to do so in your bulletin. After the service, we have... In the morning and after this service, we have nearly 90 people going through our Discover Bel Air experience who are considering membership. We had, how many show of hands were here yesterday for our All Shall Be Well conference? 330 individuals were on this campus on an all-day conference in addition to Celebrate Recovery, men's breakfast going on. And I just got back from Tijuana. There was 80 of us down in Mexico serving with Youth with a Mission. Some of your family, friends, uh, kids are there right now. In fact, uh, in 36 hours, we're building three homes. I came back with my six-year-old Judah, who was his first mission trip, first time out of the country, first time going through two and a half hours of crossing the border in Otay Mesa. First time, you know, first time for everything. But what a joy it is knowing that that group is down there right now. We wanted to set up a FaceTime with them to see Uh, Hopefully that moment as they get towards the end of that home and just the logistics didn't work out. But if you could just imagine what it's like for families who have lived in lean-to structures with uh, mud floors, wood floors for some of them, different than the wood floors that we have here, who receive the gift of generosity through our church. The 36 hours, they get to walk in, turn the keys to their home with a concrete floor, roof over their head, electricity. I put the electricity in. Who knows what's going to happen in that house, you know? (laughs) But there was this great moment where my son Judah, six-year-old Judah, uh, got to drill in the front doorknob. And I'm like, I'm losing it, right? Thinking, how many times are hands going to touch this doorknob? And my six-year-old got to put that little piece of the whole thing together. Something remarkable happens when you say yes to an invitation that Jesus gives you to follow him. And right now we're going to go to God's word. And we're in the middle of a sermon series. We're exploring the book of Exodus and that amazing historical journey. And I hope that you hear this sermon just as a moment in your life that reminds you of these eternal truths. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up. Exodus 24. And I'm going to read for us verses 9 through 18. And if you didn't bring a Bible, hopefully you can bring it next week. And if you don't own one, take that red book in front of you. That's our pew Bible. And if you, again, if you don't own one, take that with you. We'd rather have you own it in your life and speaking truth and love and power in your life than it's sitting in the pews all week. And if you're joining us online, greetings to you again. And we're in Exodus 24, verses 9 through 18. And before I read this, let me just say that this is a hinge moment in the story. Yes, there's 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. And yes, that chapter 20 
kind of the midway point in that book is where God gives the Ten Commandments. In the arc of the story, this is a huge hinge moment where things that have been are never the same again. So let me read Exodus 24, verses 9 through 18. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also they beheld God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders, he had said, wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? God, we come to this moment, and I am filled with awe the second time this morning and what's going on and what that means for us today. May your truth be made so clear in our hearts and in our minds. God, you tell us that Scripture is alive and active And God, I acknowledge that I'm not the one that brings it alive. You already have. So I pray that I would get out of the way, that my humanness wouldn't snuff out what seems to be the vibrant life here, but you clearly would be able to speak and that we collectively would hear. In Jesus' name I pray and we say together, amen. Amen. Three questions for us. What is going on? Two, How is this possible? Three, what does this mean for us today? So first, what is going on? So keep those Bibles open. Take a look right here. We see right from the get-go, first and foremost, that God is the initiator. Take a look at verse 1, Exodus 24. Then he, this is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship at a distance. And then in verse 12 it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain. You've got to understand that what is going on here is not only true back then, but it's true for us today, that God is the initiator, and it's up to us to respond. We do not initiate a relationship with God. We do not initiate peace in this world. We do not initiate justice in this world. We do not initiate anything good in the cosmos. God alone is the initiator. And you've got to understand that there's an invitation that's been extended to you today. So if you're here presently, 
If you're hearing my voice online, even if it's a decade from now on a recording, know that this is a symbol, this is a reminder that you have been invited into a relationship with the maker of heaven and earth. And some of you might say, well, how do I know that? In fact, that's a question I get so frequently as a pastor. People come to me who are not yet believers and they'll say, you know, I'm kind of exploring this Jesus thing. I've been reading the Bible, but I don't know if God wants a relationship with me. And I give the same clear answer every single time. Here's what I say. If you're asking the question, does God want a relationship with me? Like if it's somehow come to your mind that even you're asking that question, if you're curious to know the answer, does God want a relationship with me? Then the sheer fact that you're even asking that question means yes. You would not be asking that question if God wasn't drawing you to himself. God is the initiator. Scripture later on says that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws them. And there's this initiation, this invitation, this God taking the initiative for the nation of Israel. He says, come to me, come to me, come and worship me. Be in my presence. It's a fantastic moment. But what else is going on here? Because we see that there's hundreds of thousands that are part of the nation of Israel. And God only at this moment invites 70 elders plus a few named leaders. So God initiates at this moment and this time and invites just a select few. And then even after that, after what they experience happens, God invites just Moses and just Moses and Joshua begin to move forward, and then it's Moses alone that moves up into the cloud on the top of the mountain of Mount Sinai to experience God's presence for 40 days and 40 nights. What is going on here? Well, it's a reminder back then, a reminder for us today that God is holy. And when I say holy, H-O-L-Y, not like Swiss cheese, like literally holy, that God is set apart, he is distinct, he is different, that his existence is different than our existence. Now, immediately, perhaps some of us, we react negatively to that word. In fact, maybe some of you, like moments in my life where I begin to understand who God is and people begin to teach me about who God is, that there's moments where we can begin to have a distorted view of God and we begin to think of God as this angry, malicious, violent, oppressive, authoritarian judge. And God's out to get us. How many of you, show of hands, at any point in your life have felt like God was like that? Okay, put those hands up really high. Look around. This is a common distortion of the very character of God. And the problem is then we throw out that attribute of God, which is God's holiness. We throw that attribute out with the bathwater, so to speak. And we miss what is actually there. You see, from beginning to end, Scripture describes God as holy. In fact, there are angels day and night praising God, saying holy, holy, holy. Whenever you see something three times in Scripture, it is to, to accentuate, to drive a point home that it is actually perfection, that God is holy in perfection, that he's perfect in holiness. He's perfect in beauty, perfect in justice, perfect in love, perfect in mercy, perfect in power. You see, in actual fact, God is eternal and we are temporal. God is infinite and we are finite. 
God is self-existent and we are dependent. God creates us in the image of God. And what we try to do is we return the favor. And we create God in our image, which we shouldn't. And so what we do is we try to create God or an image of God in our mind in ways that can fit into our finite mind. That can fit into our human language. We can't describe the eternal. We can't describe what it means to be all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. And so what do we do? We package God into this smaller being in our minds. And it causes tremendous problems in our life. And God wants the nation of Israel to know back then, and God wants us to know today, that God is holy. And there's something about God's holiness that we have to know, that we have to understand, that we can't negotiate with, that we can't brush aside, that we can't react away from God and all of his power and just turn Jesus into my homeboy. Because there's this truth that I see in culture that we can't understand this great, glorious, majestic holiness of a God. And so what do we do? We repackage Jesus as our pal. And God is like, yo, what's up? And God wants us to come to God as we are. But you've got to understand the fullness of who God is, that he is not only Jesus, he's not only your pal, he's the prince of peace. He's not just your homeboy, he's the holy son of God. And so you've got to have both. I think there's problems if we don't think that Jesus comes alongside us as the elder brother. I think there's problems if we don't understand that Jesus wants us to walk with him as a friend. He says, I call you friend. Like he wants us to be part of his crew, to contextualize it to today. He wants us to be part of his posse, yes. But we must worship him for who he fully is. And we can't micromanage him down to this little thing that we understand. And what happens in this moment is the nation of Israel, they've, they've, a portion of them are invited forward. They begin to realize and are reminded of the holiness of God. And what happens next? Open those Bibles back up, Exodus 24. It's absolutely remarkable. It's so easy just to brush over this too quickly. Exodus 24, the beginning of verse 10 says this, and they saw the God of Israel. Verse 11, they beheld God. Now, if you understand Scripture, if you're familiar with where the story goes, likely some of you might say, whoa, 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 wait a second. How could this happen? You see, that's the second question. How could this happen? How could they see God? How could they behold God? Because in Exodus 33, later on, Moses says, I want to see your face. And what does God say? No one can see my face and live. In fact, it goes on. You read more of Scripture in Judges 13.22, the parents of Samson say, we shall surely die for we have seen God. 
In Isaiah 6, 5, it says this, Woe is me, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people who have unclean lips. For I have beheld the king of glory. I have seen him. Even Jesus says in John 4, 24, that God is spirit. In Romans 1, 20, in Colossians 1, 15, in 1 Timothy 1, 17, in Hebrews eleven twenty seven, it says that God is invisible. Jesus even says plainly in John 6, 46, no one has seen the Father. What did they see? Hope those Bibles back up. Take a look. It says it right here. Exodus 24, verses 10 and 11. They saw the God of Israel. Here's how they describe it. You ready for this? They're about to describe what Jesus says no one can ever see. They're about to describe what all those other verses say is an invisible God. They're about to describe the one who says to Moses, no one can see my face and live. And here's how they describe it. Ready for this? Verse 10. Under his feet. Let's pause right there. They didn't say, here's what his hair looks like. No. Here's what his eyes look like. No. Here's what his face looks like. No. Teeth? No. Nose? No. Ears? No. Here's what his body looked like. His arms looked like. His feet looked like. His knees looked like. Here's how tall he was. Here's how grand he was. No. They didn't even describe him. They said, here's what it looks like under his feet. They're in the presence of God. They can't look at his face. And they, all they can see is, Under his feet. And they can't even describe that clearly. Under his feet, there was something like. They didn't say it was. There was something like a pavement of sapphire stone. Like the very heaven for clearness. They're trying to wrap human language around the indescribable. They're trying to wrap what they understand around the understandable. They they, they can't even describe the ground on which God's presence is. They're so overwhelmed with the holiness, the glory, the splendor, the magnificence of God. How could this be? How could this happen? In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, absolutely remarkable, it says this. God dwells in unapproachable light who no one has ever seen who no one can ever see. So if they're in the presence of God and they don't die, and they're somehow able to survive that moment, experiencing, beholding God and only able to describe the ground on which God is present, how can that happen? The answer to that question is gonna change your life. If you hear it, the answer to that question is that it change how you read scripture, if you can hear it. 
The answer to that question is it change actually how you understand and read and approach the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Because a lie is that God does what God does in the Old Testament and then says, whoops, that didn't work. All right, plan B, let's go with Jesus. There is a clear, consistent message from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. This is one of many, 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 many moments that remind us of that truth. Flip forward to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. How can this be? How can people see something invisible? How can they experience that which is spirit? How can they, in the presence of God, this one that Jesus, no one has ever seen? Well, John 1:18 says this. Remember, all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of it connects with itself. All of it interprets itself. You can deconstruct and re-engineer all of Scripture with every bit of Scripture back and forth. It's absolutely remarkable. And in John 1, verse 18, it says this. To drive home the point, no one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. Colossians 1 says that Jesus, the Son of God, has always existed. He is before all things and for all things. He created all things for him and through him. And it even says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that the radiance of God's glory is Jesus. In John chapter 12, it talks about, remember Isaiah, who says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, because I have beheld, I have seen the king of glory. John says, who was Isaiah talking about? He was talking about Jesus. Hundreds of years before the Son of God was born in human flesh. You see, Jesus, the Christ, has always existed. He is uncreated. He is eternal, begotten of the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the Trinity, all the attributes of God, they they exist within all the persons of this community of one. And yes, Jesus, though in the very nature of God, Philippians 2 says, emptied his glory in the sense that he didn't take that as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself and became a human. And we can relate to him as a friend We can relate to him in every single way because Scripture says that he was tempted like we were tempted, and yet at the same time he is fully God and he is holy. And he is righteous and he is perfectly beautiful, perfectly just, perfectly merciful, perfectly loving, perfectly in all the ways that God is. And so there's this amazing moment where the people of God can be in the presence of God and not die for two reasons. The first reason, oh, I get the chills reading this. Can you, can you open up Hebrews? Hebrews 10. Oh, it's just amazing. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. As you get there, what page is it? 976. 976, 976 in your Red Pew Bibles. Hebrews 10. 19 through 22, before I read it, remember last week, if you're here last week, if you missed it, you can go online and listen to it. Quick summary is, the nation of Israel, they receive the Ten Commandments, they receive like 50 rules that explain those commandments, and twice they say, we're going to do it, we're going to do it, and then Moses is the leader, 
covers them in blood from a sacrifice of innocent animals. So they're entering into a covenant where they say, we're going to do it. Fast forward a few chapters, they don't do it. They're worshiping a golden calf. I mean, it's just complete debauchery. They don't do it. And yet this covenant, this holiness, happens because an innocent one has been spared. An innocent one has been sacrificed, and they are covered. What they see is not what they're going to do, but what God has done for them. And what does Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 say? Therefore, my friends, talking to us today, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's going on here? How can this be? You see, as the story begins to unfold, we're going to see that God is going to give the nation of Israel instructions on how to build a tabernacle. The tabernacle it was a temporary place where God's presence dwelled. And there were areas that got closer and closer to an area, you're going to learn this next week, called the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was experienced. And only on one day in the year, only one person, the high priest, could enter the most Holy of Holies. Talk about Holy. It wasn't just elders. It wasn't just one for 40 days. It was one high priest one day a year. And that turned into the temple system, and there was still the Holy of Holies, and there was this massive curtain, thick, that went really high, that separated the most Holy of Holies from the outer area. And when Jesus was on the cross, the very Son of God that existed for all of eternity, that stepped into human flesh, walked among us. When he went to the cross, Scripture says that 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 curtain, that veil, was torn in two, not from bottom to top, from top to bottom. No human could reach that top. It was a God ripping open God's presence, unleashed upon the world. And what's so amazing, when you look back at this moment, not only were they able to be in God's presence... Here's the reason why. They were able to be in God's presence because ultimately Jesus went to the cross. If you read the whole book of Hebrews, you begin to see and you begin to realize what they did not understand back then, that their ticket, their entrance, the fee, so to speak, to be in God's presence was the perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't yet know it. But that's the reason why in Exodus 24, they could be in God's presence. That's how you deal with this invitation. Yet there's God's holiness. They are not holy. How can they be in the presence of God and not die? Because Jesus, the Holy One, died on your and my and their behalf. Here's what's absolutely remarkable also. When John says, Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne. This is hundreds of years before he was born. Theologians say that every time in the Hebrew Scriptures where you see people, read people experiencing the presence of God, describing the presence of God, that somehow God's presence is made known, theologians say that who does that? How is that possible? That's what the Son of God does. That what they are seeing that they can't even describe, that they can only describe the floor of which the presence of God stands on is because that's actually the Son of God 
revealing God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit to them. Oh, and Jesus is just your homeboy? Oh, he's just your assistant to help you with your dreams, your plans, your goals. He is vastly overqualified for that job. You treat him like a a waiter, give him a little tip. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And what does he do with all that power? He says, I'm taking my life and I'm giving it up for you. And here's the amazing thing, this invitation that God gives through Jesus to you. If you hear my voice, if you hear this truth, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, all of you that thirst, come to me and you will be satisfied. Come to me if you're hungry, I will satisfy you. Jesus says, come to me, come to me, follow me, Jesus says. And when you respond to that invitation, in that instant, you receive the fullness of God's perfect record. Through Jesus Christ. You receive the Holy Spirit. You are adopted into God's family. You are cast out of darkness into God's marvelous light. You are a new creation in Christ. And in that moment, God's presence, which doesn't live in a tabernacle or a temple, it now dwells in you. The presence of God, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, dwells in you. And, ready for this? You were created for community. That's why Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there in my midst. Now, you got to understand this. We're going to get deep theologically here. It is not the Son of God that dwells in you. That's a distortion of the understanding of the Trinity. When we think, oh yeah, Jesus lives in me, that's it. And yes, it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. But if we just think of that, then we don't need anybody else. I don't need you. You smell. I don't like your food. You don't, I, I don't need you. It's just going to be me and Jesus, me and Jesus, me and Jesus. No, Jesus is the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And when you gather together in community, you are my body. And all the metaphors of the, the church are aspects of us as individuals built together with Christ at the head to to make up the body of Christ, to make up the royal priesthood, to make up the, the temple of God with Jesus, the cornerstone, all these great rich imagery things of who we are in Christ is magnificent. And so here's what's amazing. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, I love how Dallas Willard says it. He says that from that moment on, your soul is perpetually in the presence of God. Now, a biblical view of your soul isn't just like a little part of you, like your conscience. Uh, A biblical description of your soul is actually the sum total of who you are. It's your heart, it's your mind, it's your will, it's your physical body. It's your spirit. There's more to you than meets the eye. We're more than just flesh and blood. We live in a world and a cosmos that is so much more than just flesh and blood. And Dallas Willard says that in that moment, you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the sum totality of who you are, your soul, is perpetually in the presence of God. And yet, often our mind gets so distracted that we don't even know it. And here's the amazing thing, and some of you, you know what I'm talking about. That when you enter into a time of prayer, and it's more than just 
you know, words that just come out rote. But when you enter into a time of prayer, you, you physically and literally and spiritually, you experience the presence of God. You know what I'm talking about. And there's moments in your prayer life where human language, English language, Spanish language cannot wrap its words around what you're praying. And you pray in ways that, that other people might hear and say, what on earth is that? And you're like, I'm just, I, I'm praying in the spirit. And some of you in the midst of worshiping God, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you had it this morning. Some of you will happen later. Some of you later on today when you're worshiping God, you experience being in the presence of God. Some of you when you're alone, some of you when you're in a life group, some of you as you're serving, in all these different ways, you experience the presence of God. And it's relevant for us today because the same invitation for them is the same invitation for us, but it's exponentially greater because what they knew in part, Jesus says, I'm the real thing. I've done away with all the sacrificial system. My sacrifice is once and for all. It's not just once a day where one person enters the most holy of holies. You can come to me, Jesus, says, whenever you want. You don't need to go through your senior pastor. You don't need to go through a prayer team. You don't need to go through your life group leader. Come to me, Jesus says, and I am utterly holy. And I'm going to put my spirit in you, and I want you to be my ambassadors to the ends of the earth. And what I didn't say in the nine, but I'm going to say right here, he says, okay, you want to follow me, then live like me. I initiate, so why don't you initiate a holy life, a life that is described in Scripture as one that is pleasing and glorious and honoring to God. God says, I'm the initiator. You want to follow me? Then initiate forgiveness. Initiate love. Initiate reconciliation. Be the first one to say, I'm sorry. You want to follow me? It's a, it's a call to holiness. Jesus says, not just come and see, and not just come and follow, but he says, come and die to yourself. Then you're going to truly live. There are so many things going on in the life of this church. Step into it because God wants to use you in somebody else's life where they can experience the presence of God, and you will experience other people as the presence of God. You know, two things I didn't say earlier, but two things that are coming up in addition to our life groups, in addition to the many things that we have, we're going to have a, a spiritual warfare workshop on our campus Amen. on Saturday, March 16th. You know, and it's interesting. Some people are like, what? You're going to call it what? We've never done that before. Well, it's just, it is what it is, so let's just call it what it is, you know. So, so I, I love C.S. Lewis. He says it this way. Uh, God's enemy tries to convince us either that he doesn't exist or he's more powerful than he really is. So on that day, we're just going to gather together, and it's going to be a workshop. And what, is, what does Scripture say? And what does Scripture say about how we war not against flesh and blood, but the, the spirits of principalities, you know, on and on and on? What does that mean? What does it mean for us not to walk in fear, but in confidence? There's even a conference later on that we're hosting called the Ascend Conference. Later on, March, two weeks after that, there's men's breakfast. There's so many things that are going on in the life of this church that we want to invite you into. You're going to say yes. God gives you the gift of choice. And he says, I want to experience you experiencing my presence, God says. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love that you tell us in Scripture existed before the foundations of the world. 
So God, would your spirit lead us to truth? Help us to sort out maybe questions that we have. Would we be drawn to ask each other? Would we not walk out of here knowing that, God, you love us? That you initiate a loving relationship with us. So you don't compromise your holiness. But because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, Jesus, you cover the gap. You call us home to be your friends, your family, your followers. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray, and we say together, amen.